the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, sitting in the bar here with Lee Johnson and Jason Reed, as usual. And today we are talking about late capitalism. But before we do, let's get your drink orders and hear what you're ranting or raving about. Lee, let me start with you. What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm just going to have a bourbon on the rocks. And I am raving about Mark Maron's book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving It. (laughs) (laughs) I should also say that I'm raving about the audio version of this book. I have been listening to this on my daily walks. I have had a really shitty year, and this has been maybe worth every dollar that I would have spent on a therapist to tell me the same thing. So, And Lee, does he read the audio version? He does not, unfortunately, uh, but it is very well read by whomever the narrator is. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving? So I'm going to have a lunch, which is an India Pale Ale from the main beer company, and there are two fun facts. It's called a lunch? It's called lunch, and that's the first fun <laughs> fact. It is called lunch because it is named after a fin whale that has a bite out of its fin, mm. hence the nickname mm. lunch. And if you see a bottle, it actually has a little whale with a little bite into it. I'm drinking to the fin whale today, <laughs> or to cetaceans in general, because I just saw a story that the largest grouping of whales, fin whales, was spotted somewhere off the coast of Antarctica. 300 were seen together. The record prior to that was like 100 being seen together. So I like to think that maybe the fin whales, I know that nature's dying and everything's terrible, but the fin whales are still giving it a good fight, and so I support them on that point. But I'm <laughs> ranting. That could be a rave. I'm ranting about the New York Times, specifically the New York Times treatment of trans issues. They've run a lot of very alarmist headlines. They changed the headline of a Jamel Bowie editorial, which talked about why trans rights are of concern to everyone. So much so that they've had letters sent from contributors, and they sort of seem to double down. They responded by interviewing J.K. Rowling about her persecution. So <laughs> it's a really unfortunate editorial choice by our paper of record, and you know, cut it out. So, uh, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Before we get to Rick, can I just say that there just recently was a piece that came out by oh, The yes. Onion that was like picked up by everybody. And a lot of people were saying, like, is this the spot that we're in right now where we have to depend on The <laughs> Onion to be the beacon of moral sensibility? So, sorry. Yeah, Rick, I think we've ahead. been there for a long time. Right. I thought about making The Onion my rave, but I went with the rant. But The Onion, yeah, every time you think – that satire is dead. The onion somehow seems to bring it back. And yeah. it's yeah. Not, a, not an easy task, and I commend them for it. Yeah. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Today, I'll just have a stout. I need to feel warm on the inside. And I am raving about former President James Earl Carter. <laughs> As we're recording this, it has been reported that Jimmy Carter has decided not to seek medical attention anymore, and he's entered hospice care. He's, what, 98 or something like that? The oldest living Mm -hmm. president in history, ex-president in history. I think Carter got a really bad rap when he was president, and he's the first president that I really do remember vividly. So I've always had a warm spot in my heart for Jimmy Carter. So I'm raving about James Earl Carter and what a fantastic president he was. I met him in person, actually. What? Yeah, I did. I was the manager of this tiny independent bookstore slash cafe. And yeah, he came to promote one of his books. And and we had the Secret Service as snipers on our roof. But he was as absolutely generous and congenial and friendly as you would imagine. Good. I would hate if that went the other way. (laughs) Turns out Jimmy Carter was a fucking dick. He was a total dick. So, Jason, um, we're talking about late capitalism today, and how did you want to approach this? 
Yeah, well, in a passage that could be considered the motto of our current moment, Frederick Jameson has written, quote, It seems to be easier for us today to imagine the thoroughgoing deterioration of the earth and of nature than the breakdown of late capitalism. Perhaps that is due to some weakness in our imagination. So following up on that, why does capitalism seem so inescapable? Why do we see it not just as an economic system that came into existence at a particular point in time and will end at some point as well, but as a reflection of some fundamental truth about the world and ourselves, what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism? At the same time, given Jameson's allusion to the weakness of our imagination, might we be missing the way that capitalism itself is already mutating, changing into something else, not a revolutionary transformation into socialism or communism, but a kind of digital feudalism in which we pay rent and information to a new class of tech overlords just to survive. How can we both imagine alternatives to capitalism and recognize the transformations it is already undergoing? In other words, can we evict the capitalist that lives rent-free in our heads, or at the very least, start charging it rent? <laughs> Jason, I want to pick up on this term, capitalist realism, which you attributed to Mark Fisher. It's sometimes a phrase attributed to Frederick Jameson and Zizek. But Fisher's claim is it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. And he says that the realism in capitalist realism is analogous to the deflationary perspective of a depressive who believes that any positive state, any hope is a dangerous illusion. So to quote unquote, get real <laughs> means to confront a state of nature where dog eats dog, where you're either a winner or a loser and where most will be losers. Is that an accurate account? Do you think of capitalist realism? I mean, I think capitalism realism is an attempt to theorize the kind of sentiment that was rhetorically expressed by, you know, Margaret Thatcher when she said there's no alternative. It's an attempt to sort of understand yeah. the sense and sensibility that nothing else is possible or if you try anything, what will happen to any alternative structure is that people will get into it and start looking for their own individual gain, and they'll convert it into a capitalist system anyway. So if you set up some kind of communal structure, it'll either be destroyed by people trying to benefit off it, or someone will figure out a way to start charging for it, and everything will eventually become capitalism at the end. So it's a sense of a limited historical possibility. And I, I do think it is both a historical sense, right? It benefits from a particular interpretation of the fall of the Soviet Union, what happened over the 20th century as this attempt to try alternatives and to watch their failure, as it is a kind of sense of reality. And as we discussed a while ago in our Human Nature episode, it's very much in line with the idea that human beings are fundamentally self-serving individuals. And if that is true, then any attempt to deviate from that or transform that will either be fundamentally authoritarian because you'd be asking people to go against their nature or will fundamentally fail because that nature will manifest itself even in the face of structures that are an attempt to build something different. I think you're entirely right that arguments that are made in support of capitalist realism are largely historical arguments, but at the end of the day, they're ontological arguments, right? Like they're arguments about the real state of things. But don't you think there are also, and, and this is something Marx points out, there are also already from the beginning moral arguments so that Marx constantly points out the way in which capitalism becomes a moral system in which being thrifty, putting your nose to the grindstone, hard work, picking yourself up by your own bootstraps and so on, all of these are moral values, which now we today could hardly imagine living without, but they were brought to us by capitalism in order to, as it were, not just naturalize capitalism, but also moralize capitalism. 
Yeah, so I think there's been a change in the way people use the word what it means to be a capitalist. Like in the old classical definition, to be a capitalist was to possess capital that you're investing to get a return on. But people will often (laughs) use the term capitalist to reflect not their participation in a particular economic system, but their advocacy for it or the fact that they think this is the right way for things to be. People say, I'm a capitalist, meaning I support capitalism. I think that capitalism is the right way to arrange things, not that they possess capital, though usually they aspire to possess capital at some point. I mean, people all usually believe in the mm-hmm. system as they think it's going to benefit them. But I do think there is something interesting about that because for a long time, people have argued, and I think Zizek makes this argument, that it was progress from a left perspective when people started naming capitalism. And he, he said that for a long time, people would talk about the economic system or the economy, and they wouldn't name capitalism itself. And he thinks that mm. saying capitalism, naming it at least by definition, suggests there might be other types of economies. But at the same right. time, the naming comes with a very strange kind of identification that you're talking about, Rick. Capitalism is named when it's named no longer as just an economic system, but as a moral justification, as the way things should be, as a system of value. So I'm not entirely convinced that the naming of the system should be understood as a fundamental weakness. It could be the naming may be part of this sort of takeover of imagination that Jameson cited through Fisher, etc., are are referring to. So, Jason, I'm going to ask this question on behalf of Rick's (laughs) brother-in-law, Dave, but also myself. (laughs) Before we get too deep into the weeds here, like, can you just say what the economic system of capitalism is and what the difference between what capitalism is and what late capitalism is in your estimation? Yeah, that's that's good. Well, I'm going to give you my standard definition, and I'm going to say why I've become sort of a little troubled by that definition. The standard definition of capitalism that I usually give, my standard definition, not the standard definition, is that capitalism is an economic system where all of our needs or most of our needs are met through commodities. And commodities are things that are made to be produced on the market. Mm-hmm. What Marx said when he said capitalism confronts us as an immense accumulation of commodities. This means that the most of what we eat read, wear, etc. we are buying and has been manufactured for us to buy. And then the second part of this definition, and equally important, that itself is a necessary but not sufficient, as philosophers like to say, because commodities have been around far longer than capitalism, is the primary means for the majority to access commodities is to sell their capacity to work, their labor power as a commodity. Which means that for Mm -hmm. most of us, throughout various different walks of life, we don't own a farm or a workshop. The primary thing we do to make our living is we sell our capacity to work. We might sell it to a university in teaching. We might sell it to a Burger King in flipping burgers. But we are selling our capacity to work in order to make a living. And then I guess my third aspect of that is that the people buying that capacity to work are buying it in order to make a return on their investment, to create more capital. They are buying our commodities and selling commodities, not for the purpose of selling burgers or setting up a school, but for the purpose of making more money. Yeah, they are the owners of the means of production. Yes. Now, the late, you know, the term late's been around for a while. You know, Ernst Mandel first coined it. And it's been lingering around in lots of different discussions, and people keep asking the question we're asking, which is, if it's late, why isn't it over yet? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just stop there. Let's just only ask that question for the next hour. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Explain what late capitalism is. Late, I think, has to be understood as the absence of any real alternative existing. That capitalism is global, hmm. and there are no competing economic systems or even residual formations of other systems that capitalism has become the predominant and dominant economic system. So the lateness is, to some extent, its completion. And this gets to the question we're talking about. Part of the question there is, can capitalism function without new markets to conquer, new territories to exploit, or does its completion also become tantamount to its exhaustion? Mm. So Jason, one thing that I usually emphasize when people ask me about capitalism is that 
the commodity also stores value. It has mm-hmm. a value, and usually we mark that value in money. But because labor produces the commodity, it's the labor that introduces the value into that commodity, and yet the labor doesn't own the value they introduce to the commodity. The capitalist owns the value. And that's where the extraction can take place because in buying one's labor power, the capitalist also buys, as it were, the fruits of your labor. And so that's taken away from labor and now belongs to the capitalist. The second thing is, I think it's important to emphasize how odd it is when one's labor becomes a commodity, that my ability to work is now just like a loaf of bread or a computer or something else that's found on the marketplace. And now begins the imaginary construction, right? Because in order for me to sell my labor, I have to be the owner of it, whatever that might mean in relation to my labor. But secondly, I have to go to the market, find a buyer for my labor, and we all have to pretend as if we're equal in this situation, that that I'm free, I could sell my labor or not sell my labor, and I meet you who's free to either buy my labor or not buy my labor, and as equal and free individuals, we meet on the marketplace. So the fact that I've sold you my labor, now I just got to suck it because it was my choice to begin with. Yeah, if I could just add to that, I think for me, the defining characteristic of capitalism is that all wealth is what Marx would call surplus value. So all wealth is generated by the difference between the production value and what we might call retail value, the, the what it costs to make a thing and what you can sell the thing for. So the construction of this market, which is only interested in the production and maximization of surplus value, is what capitalism is about, right? And I tell my students this all the time, like there's one and only one function to capitalism as an economic system, and it is to maximize surplus value. It's not to generate innovation. It's not to motivate hard work. It's not to like, you know, like create moral people. It's not a moral system. It's only a system designed to maximize surplus value. And in a way, surplus value is a is a fiction. You know, I mean, surplus value is only the difference between what it costs to make something and what you can sell it for. Yeah. And I think that going back to what Rick was saying too, is I think that Part of the definition we gave would be shared by anyone Marxist or non-Marxist in terms of selling commodities and so forth. But for Marx, he really focuses on, as Rick was saying, the unique status of labor power as a strange commodity. And part of its strangeness comes from what Lee was just saying, that it is supposedly the only commodity that can produce more value than it costs, right? Because what it costs, wages, are set by a whole bunch of things – you know, Marx will talk about things like supply and demand of labor, but also the struggle over labor determines the set the price of wages. But once you show up to work, how much value can be extracted is sort of on a different register entirely. It has to do with the organization and technology of production. So there's a disconnection between how much labor power costs and how much it produces. But at the same time, the other unique thing about labor power as a commodity is unlike anything else that I could sell you. I'm not indifferent to what happens to it after I sell it to you. I got to live with that. (laughs) And so I can't just show up at work and say, here's my body, here's my brain, be back in eight hours to pick it up. Please don't lose a limb. Even that would be too much of a condition. I'm living the selling of it. So I live how someone else is trying to make use. Right? I'm on company time now. Someone else is making use of this commodity. Those two things are about it produces more value than it costs. And a third one, I think – I think this is going to get us to talking about why it's difficult to imagine going beyond capitalism. The other thing about capitalism as an economic system, it's also a political system. It's also a system of control and power. Mm. And at its heart is this compulsion, as Rick was saying, you have to sell your labor power in order to to survive. But that compulsion is what Marx refers to, and there's a very interesting new book by Soren Mao on this title, is a mute compulsion, is a phrase Marx uses. In other words, no one tells you, hey, You have to sell your labor power in order to survive as a kind of demand from some 
figure of authority. It's just the way the world works. It's the way the world is presented to us. There are commodities. They cost money. You need commodities to survive. How am I going to get money? What's the one thing I have? My labor power. And so it often appears as if no one is dictating this. It just appears to be the way the world works. And I think that's part of the hook onto our imagination is that as an economic system and a system of power, it is so baked into baked into that's a strange phrase like flavor crystals <laughs> it is baked into our way of existing that it doesn't appear to be a system at all it appears to be the way the world works right we, we say like i gotta work to make a living which you know is a phrase that makes a lot of like intuitive anthropological sense but we're not directly working to make our living we're working to make someone else's living in exchange for that we get a wage through which we live right the institutions and the mediations often disappear in the supposed immediacy of this is just the way the world works i might want to slightly disagree with you on that jason i mean i do agree with you that capitalism is a socio-economic system it's a way of organizing human beings and their labor but I'm not sure that it is all by itself a political system. I think that there are political overlays that justify it and or don't justify mm -hmm. it. But like, there's nothing implicit in capitalism that has anything to do with, for example, the good life, mm -hmm. justice, etc. So I think that one of the things that we're confronting today in quote-unquote late capitalism is a confrontation with which exactly political systems are cooperative with late capitalism, which of them aren't. And I think that some of us would argue that late capitalism is not consistent with democracy. I think that, you know, the stronger way of saying that is that late capitalism is only consistent with a kind of authoritarianism. So I'm not sure that I agree that capitalism by itself implies a political system. But what I heard Jason saying was, and Lee, I think you laid out a slightly different definition of politics when you talked about justice and the good life. The way I heard Jason define politics, I think I'm with him on this, is that it, politics has to do with the distribution, exercise, or non-exercise of power. And to that extent, then capitalism mm. is definitely a political system. Yeah, and fair enough. I think one of the things Marx points out is that in many ways, capitalism doesn't care about authoritarianism or democracy. It doesn't care about parliamentary democracies versus representative democracies and so on. All it cares about is ensuring that nothing in, one might say, the legislative and executive function of governments gets in the way of the buying of labor and the extraction of surplus value from that labor. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So I want to take Rick's objection to my point that capitalism is not a political system seriously. But I want to frame it in this way. In U.S. politics today, the two most well-known and probably well-respected non-academic critics of capitalism, I would argue, are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Of course, that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would be more respected if she weren't so young and pretty is beside the point. But, you know, that is also a fact. Anyway, Bernie Sanders is currently on tour with his new book entitled, It's Okay to Be Mad About Capitalism. While Warren has gone to great pains since 2016 to distinguish herself from Sanders by repeatedly noting that she is a capitalist. But 
one who believes that capitalism can and should be reformed. So I think that what we can see, even in these two notable anti-capitalists, is a kind of mirroring of the sense that capitalism is not a political form. You know, on the one hand, we can reject capitalism and also maybe amend democracy, or we can preserve democracy and also maybe amend capitalism. But at any rate, I'm just wondering what you guys think of this current U.S. political discourse that focuses around these kind of Sanders-Warren polls. It's interesting. I think that partly the sort of Sanders and everything that's happened in U.S. politics sort of post-Occupy has been a strange attempt to revitalize an anti-capitalist imagination from its atrophied state. And from the atrophied state, I think, reflects that it is strange because, you know, some of this discussion of what it means, say, for someone like Sanders to call himself a democratic socialist or the revival of the term democratic socialist in the U.S., sometimes it comes with a very watered down definition of what it means to be a socialist in which the very basic things like public expenditure for roads, fire departments, etc., are seen to be socialist, right? Because, I mean, one of the things about this definition of socialism, is it's framed against the backdrop of late capitalism, or another way to refer to late capitalism is what Etienne Balibar calls absolute capitalism, right? It's when capitalism has no longer an alternative globally and no longer contending with limitations internally. And so every slight sort of state expenditure or public expenditure for anything is now seen as socialist, which I think that's a very impoverished definition of socialism as far as I'm concerned, right? We're not really talking about an alternative economic system in which public ownership of the means of production is used to, in some sense, produce another basis for existence other than the one mediated by the market. What we're calling socialists now, you know, and this goes back to the debate we're having right now on this show, about politics in the sense that, <laughs> on the one hand, there's a stripped-down version of politics that I was using earlier, which is allocation of power, telling people what to do. That's what I meant when I said capitalism is political. But I think that, at the same time, there's the politics of the state, and whether or not the state is truly some kind of alternative to capitalism, not in terms of capitalism, but an alternative institution within the capitalist terrain, or if it is thoroughly implicated within it. Even going back to the basic definition of capitalism, right? One of the things you need in order for people who have nothing but their labor power to sell, to sell that labor power, you need an entire system of law making sure that people without their labor power to sell don't just go and grab what they need so that the state is internal to the very definition, I think, of a system that sells labor power in order to exist. I think the state, is, its goal in a capitalist economy is to make that possible and to some extent mediate some of the ambiguities or the contradictions around that strange commodity that is labor power. Take a recent example, right? When there was a shutdown in COVID-19, when stores shut down, a lot of commodities could just sit on the shelf and wait until the store reopened. But labor power as a commodity can't just wait on a shelf, right? right? People needed some yeah. way in order to be able to exist. So you got the brief, insufficient relief checks that were really a way so that labor power would be available when the market reopened again, right? So the state does that in part because – its job is to deal with the gap between the commodity that is labor power and the reality of living human beings' lives. Well, that gap itself, and this is what is often meant by socialists, right? The more things you add to that gap, like protection for people when they get sick, ways of dealing with the fact that people can't always sell their labor power, they can't work forever, right? You can fill all of the dimensions of that gap or you can just fill a few and just deal with the absolute extremes and that's where you get, I think, the Sanders-Warren kind of debates about like how much should the state be doing in terms of the gap between living human beings and labor power as a commodity. So would you say that one of the defining characteristics of late capitalism is the fact that so many people who see its evident flaws – as Descartes would say, clearly <laughs> and distinctly, you know, like Sanders and like Warren, just 
find themselves nevertheless saying, I can't quit you. (laughs) Well, I mean, what's interesting about that, Lee, is I was thinking as you were asking the question and Jason was responding to it, that there is a way in which I think Sanders does accept quite a bit of what goes along with capitalism without really even recognizing it. I've always been worried since Occupy about the focus on the so-called 1%, because for me, this has always been indicative of looking for an individual through whose agency the evils of capitalism have been brought about. And I don't think that capitalism is about the 1% versus the 99%. As Jason was saying, this goes back to the difficult and oftentimes impossible position that someone is put in when they are forced to sell their labor on a so-called free market as if it were a commodity. And in that case, capital is the actor there, not the capitalist. And so to the extent that Bernie talks in these terms, I think he rides along with the kind of possessive individualism that actually stands at the center of many people's imagination about what capitalism is and what makes it function. Rick, I love you, but I could not possibly disagree with you more. (laughs) On this particular point, and we've had this conversation before, but I think that Bernie Sanders absolutely is not relying on a notion of the individual when he talks about the 1% and the 99%. He's talking about collectives, right? Like, And it's only in that way that you can convince the workers as a class that they are the producers of surplus value that is only collected by the bourgeoisie, you know, I mean, just in basic Marxist terms. He's doing this rhetorically in order to rally labor. Then I I don't really have a problem with it, for sure. But then I would ask, what is the problem with talking about the 1%? You're not talking about the one person. You're talking about the 1%. But it's irrelevant whatever the percentage is. And the only way capitalism functions is with a shit ton of capitalists who are not in the 1%. And in fact, many of the people who are in the 1% are no longer even capitalists. Yeah, but I don't think that workers can see the exploitation of capitalism without focusing on the 1%. Right. And that's where I go back like as a rhetorical strategy, okay. Uh, but I do worry about playing into that it's the agency, not just of an individual. That wasn't my point. It's that capitalism depends on what these 1% are doing that clouds the critique of capitalism sometimes a little bit too much, such that Elizabeth Warren could say, my good friend Bernie and I agree on a whole lot. It's just that I call myself a capitalist and he calls himself a socialist. And we're both millionaires. And we're both millionaires. (laughs) But also not capitalists in the classical Marxist sense. Well, Warren is. I mean, she says over and over and over again, she's a capitalist. But she means I'm a supporter of capitalism. Like, like, what's the difference? Well, she's not using capital to go on the market, buy labor power in order to produce commodities and extracting the surplus value from that labor. That's a capitalist. Yeah, but she's in support of yes. the production of surplus value For by sure. the extraction of labor. So, For sure. yeah, I mean, like to me, that's parsing whatever it is that one parses. Well, I, I disagree yeah. with that because what's seemingly intractable about capitalism, and maybe this is what gets us into late capitalism, is that even labor supports capitalism. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so yeah. I don't think anyone wants to deny that the distinction between capitalism and labor is an important distinction. And so I don't want a worker who supports capitalism to be called a capitalist. I, mean, I think this goes back to the 1% question. I do think there are you know, two different types of criticisms of capitalism, both really to be found, I think, in Marx. The one is the sense of capitalism is a system of compulsion in which everyone has to sell their labor power. No one is quite responsible. There's no one demanding that. It is the subordination to the system. And of course, to some extent, this includes the capitalists, right? The capitalists, 
this is the fault of very yeah. sort of personal critiques like the sort of Michael Morse type ones where you want to like find the CEO and hold him mm-hmm. accountable. If you did, yeah. you know, yeah. if you did and Roger and me ever find the guy, he would just say, look, I'm dealing with – I got market pressures to deal with here. I got – look what's happening over in Japan. Look what's happening here. I got to cut people. I got to move. Yeah, I'm just like never, you. There is no little man behind the door. You would never find that person. You would always find someone who would say – there are market pressures I have to deal with. So there's a way in which you could make a criticism of capital as an impersonal system of relations that are, I mean, impersonal in a very paradoxical way because it's sustained by human actions every day. But human actions in such a way, there is no person in charge, that the system itself is in charge. That's one criticism. And in that criticism, the 1% doesn't really make sense because they are just simply a slice of the totality and not the cause of the totality. Right. But then there is, in the same time, there is the criticism framed in terms of class struggle, right? There's the ruling class, the exploited class. I mean, within this system, there are definitely people who are doing better than other people, and there are definitely sure. people <laughs> who have more agency of a sort than other people. So, you know, there's the structural, and then there's the kind of struggle. And there are two different ways of looking at the same thing, although I do think that criticisms can focus on one or the other. But what is, you know, as Rick mm-hmm. was pointing out earlier, what one of the situations that we're confronted with now is that even people who talk in terms of class struggle sometimes do so within the general frame of capitalism, is assumed mm-hmm. as the basis. And I think this is what you see in these criticisms of capitalist greed, as if the problem isn't the economic system. It's that people are taking too much money. Like if they just right. took a little less and gave some back to the workers, things would be okay. That's the real fault with the sort of 1% type criticism is it attributes a kind of agency in a system which has as one of its defining characteristics the undermining of agency. Yeah. I want to say that's the fault of the Elizabeth Warren criticism <laughs> of capitalism, which is not the Bernie Sanders criticism, not the 1% criticism of capitalism, which is not about like, oh, if people just took less, the whole system would be okay. Like, I don't think Bernie Sanders would say that in any torture chamber. I don't think he would say that, you know, but like that is in fact Elizabeth Warren's platform. If the exploiters were just less exploitative, this system would be okay. Yeah. She wants to envision capitalism without corruption, and then everyone would be better off and no one would be hurting if we could just have capitalism without corruption. Bless her heart. Jason, you send us a piece by Mackenzie Warwick and Jody Dean. It was a selection from their book, Capital is Dead. Their argument is that value no longer resides in owning the means of production, but in controlling flows of information. And they seem to want to make an argument that we are now in a phase of what they call neo-feudalism. If I'm going to be totally honest, I don't think that I've ever really understood what feudalism is, (laughs) but you sent us this essay by Dean and Wark, and could you just tell us in what way is, quote unquote, late capitalism a, quote unquote, neo-feudalism? I mean, first of all, right, you know, feudalism would be where the, the lord or whoever owns the land. And Just to be clear, Jason here does not mean the Lord Jesus <laughs> Christ or our Lord in heaven. The feudal lord, yes, <laughs> owns the land and you have to work their land in order to get a small bit of land on your own. And you have to sort of be faithful to them and so on, be their subject in order to be able to really exist. So it's not labor that's being extracted. And the primary aspect of this, and it, and it is tricky because in feudalism and capitalism, we're both talking about a form of power that rests on ownership, ownership of a necessary condition of existence. But the difference mm-hmm. being in capitalism, the capitalist owns the means of production and you sell your labor power as we're discussing. 
feudalism, they own the means of existence, which is the land itself. And I think the neo-feudalism comes in this notion that our existence is in some sense predicated on information. We all need access to, you know, Google in order to do stuff, to get around the city, to communicate. And the ownership of that or other formats or other platforms, they own the platform and we need to, in some sense, give the platform our information in order to have access to the platform. And we need access to the platform because so much of our daily life can't exist without it. Now, of course, in talking about feudalism, we're already kind of bringing up one possible objection, and that is we can't eat information. We still need fundamental commodities like food in order to exist as well. But the idea would be that ownership and control of information is taking the place of ownership of the means of production. So what you're saying, Jason, is that ultimately we're all thieves to Apple, Google, Alibaba, Amazon, etc. Yeah, in that view. Although I do think that you know, one has to reconcile that with the fact that even though we are fiefs, we still have to sell our labor power in order to live on this fiefdom. Our information may be a source of value for others, but it's not something we're paid for in the same way we're paid for our labor. Yeah, I mean, that's my experience, right? Like, I basically rent space on Google, on Amazon, on Facebook, on Twitter so that they can produce value, right? Like buy my rental of that mm -hmm. space. Even though I'm not cultivating potato crops right. or whatever, it's still, <laughs> it still amounts to the same oh, thing. You're cultivating buttloads of information and data for them. Literal buttloads. <laughs> Which they can then sell. And we talked about this in a different episode, namely what Cory Doctorow refers to as the in-shittification. And that is yeah. the moment in which some company that deals in the information business, whether it's Amazon or Google or Facebook, when they stop serving the producers of that information and treating them as customers and they start serving advertisers and treating them as customers, that's the moment in which inshittification starts happening. But what I think also is different between actual feudalism and this neo-feudalism is that feudalism operates in an entirely personal way, mm -hmm. whereas capitalism is intensely impersonal. And so I have a personal relationship to the Lord. The Lord has a personal relationship to the king or the duke or, you know, whoever is above them. And so this economic relation is also at the same time a personal relation. And so not all relations are economized and not all relations are commercial. Whereas I think no, one would be hard-pressed to say that if we want to call this situation neo-feudalism, <laughs> we have a personal connection to Google or Amazon, and we're not pledging our loyalty to these companies. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's fair. I might want to question like, to what extent the thief has a personal relationship with this feudal lord, you know, but I think you're absolutely right that it's got to be more personal than my relationship with Google or Amazon, 100%. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Jason, if I could just ask you, like, I mean, I think that a lot of people, you know, in light of the fall of the Berlin Wall and its aftermath, people like British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher proclaims like there is no alternative to capitalism. What you're calling late capitalism contrasted with this view that there is no end to capitalism. I should say that I'm not entirely convinced of the sort of neo-feudalism idea. And part of the reason I'm not convinced is because I don't see the basic structures of capitalism, owning capital and selling a labor power in order to survive, going away at all. And I do mm -hmm. think that to some extent, this new emergent feudal digital overlord caste is itself situated within and often dependent upon capital, right? They need venture capital in order to exist. And in some sense, they're profiting through a kind of crisis internal to capitalism, right? Venture capital exists because people don't know what to produce anymore or, or produce anymore profitably, right? So they're turning to the idea that trying to extract more value from different pores of existence, right? Uber doesn't sell cars. What it tries to sell you is the car service as a relation 
and utilizes the information or is built upon the infrastructure of mapping and other forms of information to make that possible. So I do think that what's called neo-feudalism is itself a mutation within capitalism. But as a mutation, I think it's very useful because as we're talking about and as you're asking about, there is a limit to our own imagination that we're struggling with here. And maybe part of the limit of our imagination is we're looking for something that is predicated on the past, right? I mean, Marx himself, because he thought ultimately that feudalism was overthrown by the sort of bourgeois revolutions in France and the US, etc., he thought a revolution was coming again. But at the same time, Marx himself was very critical of this tendency to imagine the future on the basis of the past, you know, let the dead bury the dead, as Marx said. And I wonder to what extent our own waiting for the revolution might make it so we miss some of these transformations that are going on right now. And I'm not saying these transformations are good. I mean, I sort of agree with Mackenzie Work that, like, it's worse. The capitalism is dead. Something worse has come on. The control over information is, in some sense, worse. But within it, there are possibilities, both economic and sort of infrastructure, but also in terms of attitude. Yeah, imaginary. Yeah. Imaginary, right. People who grew up in the digital world, digital denizens or whatever, are very used to the idea that they shouldn't have to pay for stuff. That this stuff is out there and they should just be able to access it. Why not? It's out there. Yeah. And so we see a breakdown of, I think, one of the fundamental sort of moral tenets of capitalism that like shit's not free. And if you want something, you got to pay for it. (laughs) And that's already being undermined. I mean, it's being undermined in a way that people are thinking they're getting something free and they're actually giving up a lot in terms of information to get it. But at the same time, I do think that people are not imagining a revolutionary transformation, but they are imagining different ways of existing. Mm. Yeah. But I wonder how much this breaks out of a fairly classical analysis of how capitalism functions. Because if I take a step back and recall that Marx gets to money only by talking about the exchange of commodities and that what eases the exchange of commodities is if one of those commodities could be the universal exchange value so that each time someone doesn't have to figure out how many pairs of shoes to give me for a lecture in philosophy, Mm -hmm. but there's a universal exchange value and the universal exchange commodity becomes money and, and plays the function of money. I don't see why information couldn't be then a new form of money. That is, it is a store of value that can be exchanged for other stores of value, that is, for other commodities. I think one difference is that it's not universal, right? So I can't go and buy a six-pack with my information. But I think the other crisis is that we're finding out that at first, some companies like Google that are selling advertising, they thought information could be a currency, and they're realizing that it doesn't hold the same amount of value for the actual goods that are being delivered to us in exchange for information, and that's an economic model that is unsustainable, right? Because it costs actual money, and it's more difficult to convert information into money than everyone thought it was. I mean, I just want to push back on the idea that it's more impossible to convert information into money than people thought it was. I mean, the fact is, I don't know what kind of credit card you have, but I can buy beer with information. You know, I could just like tap my credit card and buy beer. Lee, I tap my phone. (laughs) Same thing though, right? You're buying beer with information, you know. So maybe one of the things that is encouraging to me about the quote unquote digital economy is that there are more ways of pushing back on the exploitation of labor. So If I could just refer back to our episode on influencers, we talked about the way that one of the things that influencers do is they're just capitalizing on attention and figuring out a way to monetize attention. And I think that we all have to admit that attention is not all by itself a monetizable resource. You know, I mean, like I can withdraw my attention from, for example, influencers and diminish their value 
without diminishing my attention. So I think that there is something that we really do have to think about, about the attention economy, the digital economy that allows for more possibilities for undermining the imposition of capitalist values in the way that we're traditionally accustomed to thinking about them. Yeah, I also think that to the extent that they're successful, what the hell is that called where you can give money, you know, a company says, oh, we're going to produce a robot vacuum if you- Kickstarter? Kickstarter. Okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I think- Similarly, operations like Kickstarter can help to disrupt the flow of what Jason referred to earlier, namely venture capital, in which the supposed future consumers are the ones who are providing the venture capital. The problem with that, though, is how many of these fail. But secondly, and I wanted to talk about this before, it really is capitalism that introduces mediation as a source of value itself. This is how Chicago became an economic powerhouse such that people were calling it the capital of the 19th century because we learned if we could touch everything that passes through our hands, we could take a little cut for each of that. And so we don't produce crops, but if we can touch those crops, then we get a little off the top. We don't produce lumber, but if we could touch that lumber, we could take a little bit off the top. And so what the digital economy does is it explodes the possibilities for mediations of all kinds, and therefore it diffuses the value that can be extracted in a quasi-infinite number of directions. And this is also an unsustainable economic model. Yeah. And for that reason, I think that Kickstarter is the absolute worst example of a way to undermine capitalism. Like, what has Kickstarter done in the actual world except undermine democratic socialism, right? Like, what are the most Kickstarters kickstarted for? Medical bills. I, I, I always thought that was more like a GoFundMe thing than a Kickstarter Same thing, thing, though. Like, they're all the same basic, yeah. you know, like app function. Well, GoFundMe, right. you can get money even if you don't complete your project. Right. You can get some doesn't money. doesn't matter. Like, okay, I don't know this, but I would guess that both Kickstarter and GoFundMe are mostly medical bills. Oh, it's like two-thirds on GoFundMe. It's yeah, two, for Two-thirds sure. of yeah. these medical bills. So yeah, in some sense, it's a failure of capital. It's a failure of the state to sort of- Yeah, it's a displacing to the other workers of the failures of the state. Right. I, by the way, have supported in my life three Kickstarter projects, none of which ever made it to the factory floor and out the door. <laughs> so, um, And I didn't give my money yeah. back for those either. But I mean, this is the same argument people use in favor of capitalism, right? That capitalism is a way of funding viable new commodities, and that's why we need it, because without capitalism, there would be no innovation. Right. And this is also the best argument against capitalism, which is like individuals find themselves retreating to these Kickstarter, mm-hmm. like, you know, GoFundMe programs because the basic social safety net that should be provided by an immensely wealthy nation like ours is just simply not there. Yeah, for sure. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Rick, do you want to bring us back and give Jason a moment to like wax philosophical? (laughs) You got your wax on? Are you licking the wax? Wax on. Hey, did you know that right now Rick is teaching Descartes (laughs) meditation? 
Well, I was right. You brought it up, Rick. You brought you it up, did. Lee. You did. You brought it up. I was waiting for you to uh, drag me under the bus with He's that. He's like, right now, I happen to be teaching Descartes meditation. All right. Our bartender is selling her labor power, and she's sick and tired of people like us exploiting that labor power. So she's issued last call. But before we go, Jason, do you have any final thoughts? Well, we started with this question about, you know, difficulty of imagining an alternative. And I think one of the things I think has come up in the conversation is that there are no shortage of changing technological conditions to create different ways of organizing the economy. And in some sense, maybe it is true that our imagination lags behind the possibilities we create and our imagination is sort of stuck in, really stuck in that moment of the end of the 20th century with the fall of the Berlin Wall and that sort of depressive moment, as Lee was saying from Mark Fisher, this sort of sense of nothing else is possible, right? And a part of the problem with that depressive moment it's like what Spinoza says about how a lot of people overestimate themselves, but you can't really underestimate yourself because once you think you're incapable of doing something, you don't do it and it becomes true. Mm. And I think that to some extent, yeah. our inability to imagine an alternative becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. The less we can imagine something, the less we can do something, although I do think as we've said in this conversation, capitalism is changing. It's changing for the worse. And I do think we have the technological capacities to alter it to something better. We just need to bring our imagination in line with the possibilities we're creating. I think the limits really now are more ideological than they are technological or mm. yeah. economic. So, you, you know, know, if I could just say I had a Fulbright in Poland and we met the Polish minister of the economy. This was right after the fall of communism. And well, in fact, communists still had a majority in parliament. And this economic minister said to us that we realized during the transition that between socialism and capitalism, there is no third way. I remember thinking, if you can't even imagine a third way, how could you imagine the infinite possibilities that exist outside of capitalism and socialism? It really just is stunning the incapacity that most of us have to imagine and otherwise. I will say, and nobody asked me for my final <laughs> thoughts, but I will say that one of the things that disturbs me the most about late capitalism is the way in which it has managed to capitalize, I mean, for lack of a better word, capitalize on what Jason was calling earlier a kind of digital mm. feudalism. You know, so this capture of all of us in digital life and a digital world. And by the way, you know, you all know me, like I am not objecting to a digital life or a digital world. But it makes us so comfortable with not only the products that we buy, but a willing ignorance about how they're mm. brought about that it dupes us into even seeing how we are exploited mm. by capitalism. And so, you know, like I say this to my students all the time, why hasn't the workers' revolution already happened? Like, literally, mm. like, why hasn't it? When we study Marx, all of you are like, yeah, this is absolutely right. <laughs> you know, this is absolutely true. Sign me up. But it hasn't happened because you have mm -hmm. iPhones and you have Netflix and your life is comfortable and it's very easy to be distracted from these larger sociopolitical problems in which you are already implicated and yeah. with which you should be concerned. Yeah, and- you know, one of the problems we're implicated in is that we don't own the means of production of this podcast, so we have to pay someone else. <laughs> for <laughs> Nice pivot. <laughs> you see what I did there? So we have to pay someone else to host this podcast and distribute this podcast, and that's not an insignificant amount of money. And so we really appreciate all of our patrons who are already supporting us at our Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. 
we could use any support that you can give just to help keep this podcast going out until we can overthrow the capitalist mode of production and take on the means of the podcast production ourselves. In our last and final episode of season six, we're actually going to be talking about the allegory of the cave. Jason and Rick and I all decided that we needed to have a kind of recurring episode that was just dealing with philosophical ideas that most people have a nodding familiarity with, but maybe they don't actually know all the details of. So I'm really excited about talking about the allegory of the cave next time. Rick's going to take the director's seat on this, so you don't have to rely on my account of it. So if it's not objectionable to you of the proletariat, is it okay if I call a car to take us home? Yes, give some of your information to the digital overlords and they'll uh, they'll send a car. Oh, Jason, you, you depress me so much. I'll see you in the cave. See All you right. in the cave. All right. Thank you.